Did the government want us to survive nuclear war? Their civil defence information certainly implied that they did. I have here some archives from Surrey Council detailing their local plans for community survival and its optimistic tone tells us that if we follow the advice then millions can be saved. But there's another school of thought which says the government wouldn't exactly be heartbroken if lots of us died in the nuclear war because that would mean less mouths to feed, less injured and sick bodies to treat, less people to house and less angry mobs perhaps turning on them when desperation turns to rage and revolution. So do the government want us or not after nuclear war? Are survivors a hindrance or a help? It depends on how active and obedient you are. If you can get up and work and do it with a tidy compliance, then okay. But if you're weak or sick or elderly, then you might be taking rather than paying in on the great post-nuclear ledger. So it's probably fair to say the government would be happy with plenty of survivors as long as they could work and start the long, terrible haul out of the survival phase and into the recovery phase. So yes, compliant workers please. No fuss, no trouble, no questioning the rules, no asking about your rights. These are not normal times, just work please. Questions can come later. The government will want post-nuclear productivity, not post-nuclear anarchy or chaos. No government wants that, but particularly now in Britain's new darkest hour, they would need the survivors to knuckle under and work as never before. And they need to extract that labour from us in a time when we've never been more battered and sick and disheartened. And so, in Britain's civil defence plans, we see a lot of attention given to the matter of law and order. Because the authorities, well, they're really in a bit of a pickle after the Holocaust, aren't they? As they need to compel us to work and be orderly and obedient in a time when the usual rules of discipline have been shattered. Just now, given that Britain has no death penalty, the ultimate punishment for any terrible crime is, of course, life imprisonment. But after a nuclear war, that ceases to be a punishment. One, because a criminal might welcome imprisonment, because it would mean shelter and a bed and the provision of regular food. But secondly, prisons might simply not be available, as they will have been largely emptied of criminals in the countdown to nuclear war. So with the ultimate punishment withdrawn, how do you maintain order? Can you do it through the force of your reputation? We judges and politicians represent the fair and just laws of the British state. But hasn't the reputation of the British state just been trashed? It engaged in a nuclear war. Well, can't you maintain law and order through your image? Ah, but there's no more robes and uniforms and wigs and parades and grand halls. Now you're in rags and dirt like the rest of us. And if you're not... If you dare to appear before the masses representing the state looking 
clean and rosy and plump? Well, is there anything more guaranteed to kick off revolution? And what if you simply can't enforce the law because you're, you can't be physically present? After a nuclear war has pulverised the road network and the communications, what about all the little towns and villages across Britain who find themselves cut off from the outside world? That's what we'll look at today, going into the archives of Surrey Council who, in the 80s, drew up plans for their little villages to try and maintain law and order if they became cut off from the rest of the world without any police presence. Prior to nuclear war, the police in Britain would have gone on a massive recruitment drive. They had to beef up their numbers hugely. This is because nuclear war would land a whole lot of extra duties on the police, such as beefing up the fallout and blast protection at their stations, a responsibility for sounding the sirens, guarding food stocks, keeping civilians off the main roads once they've been designated as essential service routes, Uh, and guarding police stations. They would also be in charge of detaining and restricting the movement of people who had been designated as subversives. And remember, of course, all these extra duties are on top of the existing duties of, you know, maintaining order and catching the bad guys. So yeah, damn right, you'd need a whole lot of extra police. But there's another reason for the huge recruitment and... That's the oncoming nuclear war. The bosses know they're about to lose thousands and thousands and thousands of their people, losing them either to death, sickness or injury. Just as the country is about to lose a whole lot of its teachers and milkmen and accountants and butchers and housewives and lawyers, it's about to lose a whole lot of its police. So they would try and preempt that terrible oncoming loss by beefing up the numbers. But where would the police find all these extra officers? Well, for a start, they draw on the specials. In Britain, the special constabulary are a part-time voluntary. In Britain, the special constabulary are part-time voluntary officers who go on duty for a couple of weekends a month, for example. So they'd be pulled in for some full-time war work, unless, of course, the specials' day job was some other essential wartime duty. The chief constable could also beef up the numbers by refusing to allow his existing officers to leave. (laughs) That's right. If your retirement is coming up and you've booked your cruise or 
bought a villa in Spain. The boss can say, no luck, mate, you're staying. Put that carriage clock down. The police manual of home defence, which I have in front of me here, also says that new officers will be obtained through, quote, the enrolment of temporary constables who will have the full powers of regular police officers. Their training will be a matter for improvised arrangements at the time. Now that's deliberately vague, of course, as the authors of these guidelines had no way of knowing what the countdown to nuclear war would be like. To me, this implies they could toss a uniform and a baton at any burly dudes to offer their services at the station. They'd also be able to find new officers amongst the prison service. Prison officers would be free to join the police because jails would have been largely cleared of their prisoners in the run-up to war. This would free up prison staff, a body of trained, fit, disciplined men, but it would also free up prison buildings themselves. After all, why should these sturdy, forbidding, protected buildings be wasted on housing some baddies? More info on that in my previous episode called Get Out of Jail Free. Now the police in the towns and cities are going to have a dreadful job on their hands after the attack. They will be seeing the most destruction, the heaviest fallout, and they will have something arguably even more dangerous, a population. People become a problem now. Pre-attack it was about getting people to follow advice, help yourselves, stock up on water and tins, get batteries for your radios, listen out for warnings. It was largely about helping. After the attack, it's all about controlling people. The people have now become, or are on their way to becoming, desperate, starving, angry, shocked and sick. Once the initial apathy of their trauma has worn off, see previous episode called Panic for more info on that, once that apathy has worn off, then many of the survivors might turn to violence or looting or might seek someone to blame for the for the loss of their whole world. Who did this? Who did this to us? Not able to find a handy Soviet general to blame, the people might have turned their rage on anyone who was seen to be representing authority and power. I've found in my archive, uh, I can't think exactly where at this point, so I can't quote from it directly, but I have mentioned it in my book, in the NHS chapter, that there was considered to be a risk that survivors in this state might even attack any ambulance or rescue staff who eventually made it into their streets to offer help, because they would be seen as a person in uniform, A person representing the state. So the people, angry, desperate, starving, psychologically battered and traumatised, they now become a concern for the police. If there's to be any chance of recovery for the state, law and order must somehow be maintained. And of course that's one of the reasons why the police force has been majorly beefed up prior to attack. 
That's all very well for urban areas, which already had major police stations and the staff and resources that go with that. But what about rural Britain? What about little villages who might only have had a local bobby on the beat? How do they maintain order? So let's look at this document here called A Guide to Communities for Survival and War. It's from the 1980s. I got it from the archives in Surrey and the cost, the substantial cost, was met by my Patreon money. If you donate to my Patreon each month, you're not just supporting the podcast, but you're helping fund my nuclear research and helping me purchase and obtain and, in the good old days, travel to archives. So, a thank you here to all my patrons. You've paid for this big archive that I was able to buy from Surrey. So let's look at Chapter 7, Section 2, which is called Local Peacekeeping. For people who aren't familiar, Surrey is a county in the southeast of England. It lies uh, southwest of London. So obviously it's heavily populated and has various large towns like Guildford, Woking, Leatherhead. But it also has lots of very pretty rural villages like uh, Homebury, St Mary, Friday Street and Albury. And yes, there are roads connecting them all, of course. This is modern Britain. But will those roads be passable? after nuclear attack. Maybe they've been churned up by the blast, or jammed with the fried cars of any fleeing Londoners. Or maybe they've been blocked by the villagers themselves. Maybe these villagers, reluctant to be swamped by refugees from London, which, remember, is only about 30 miles away, maybe they've barricaded the roads themselves. We have seen similar things happen in Britain during the coronavirus pandemic, with villages in the West Country or in the Highlands erecting keep-out signs to any tourists and making it clear that second homeowners were not welcome. Might this sentiment be cranked up to 11 after nuclear attack? This document considers that many villages in Surrey might well be cut off from the outside world for a time after nuclear attack. So how does such an isolated small village maintain law and order with no police presence and no immediate prospect of one? The chapter starts with a little dig about so-called declining standards of public behaviour in Britain. This document was written, remember, in the late 80s, so the riots and unrest of the early 80s in inner-city Britain were obviously a fresh memory. The paper reminds us that we are now living in a permissive society, and so the task of keeping the peace and preserving life and property is more difficult than ever before. Quote, If the recent experiences of Toxteth and Brixton are any guide... So there's a little hint there that the good villagers of Surrey were unsettled perhaps by the scenes on the news in the early 80s of broken glass and burning cars and attacks on police. Could all that unrest erupt here on the village green 
under the hanging baskets, on the cobbled lanes. So anticipating trouble and expecting to be cut off from help from the larger towns, what does the village do? Well, if they have their traditional local Bobby and he has survived the attack, then this document says the local community should assist him. Communications will be down, so he can't call for help or backup, so he must turn to the local community for assistance in keeping the peace in his post-nuclear village. In this case, the document recommends he turn to the appointed community leader. This is a person who's been selected prior to the attack to organise the community. He should be a person of leadership and personality, recognisable in the village and able to demonstrate a bit of leadership. So this big, towering, vigorous community leader will meet with the local Bobby, and according to the guidance here, they should, quote, form a system of street watchers to report cases of lawlessness. Street watchers? Wouldn't they have been called curtain twitchers or nosy neighbours in another life? But nonetheless, they are now street watchers and they keep an eye on things. And the beleaguered Bobby may also organise patrols to walk the village or to guard any food or fuel supplies. Now, we all know that a bit of power might go to someone's head in this case. Think of the recent Handforth Parish Council meeting which went viral on Twitter. There was real anger on display there at the thought of a newcomer taking control. So this document offers a reminder that any of these newly appointed street watchers or patrol squads must always be acting on the policeman's instructions. Quote, they must not act on their own initiative except to protect life and property. And if force has to be used, only use as much force as necessary. So, you street watchers, don't get carried away. Remember who's in charge. As mentioned at the start of the episode, you don't want ordinary members of the public acquiring power and clout and authority, or at least thinking they have such things. That's how vigilantism starts. If we leave Surrey for a moment and fly west across the map to Dorset, There were some flurries of worry there in the late 80s about vigilantes and private armies setting themselves up to provide assistance to the community. In Dorset, the Legion of Frontiersmen made the local newspapers when they set up Operation Condor, which was an exercise at a local airbase, testing their readiness to swoop in and help the community after a disaster. The frontiersmen were all ex-servicemen, and so there may have been a bit of nervousness in some quarters about some kind of power grab after nuclear war by these highly trained frontiersmen. My archives show me some worried letters to the Home Secretary about these blokes. I'll quote from one here, which was a response from the Home Office, putting worried citizens' minds at rest that the Legion of Frontiersmen were not about to be handed any special power. The letter says, I should perhaps make it clear that the government has conferred no special rights or powers on this organisation. 
Although its uniforms and rank structure give the impression that it is some kind of military organisation, it does not have any form of government support, and its members have no right to bear arms. It is, in fact, simply a voluntary organisation, having the avowed object of rendering assistance to the community in times of need. But the letter goes on to say that successive governments in recent years have taken the view that there is no need for any new voluntary organisations to deal with peacetime emergencies or the consequences of war. There are sufficient well-established organisations such as the Territorial Army, the Special Constabulary, the Red Cross and ambulance associations, providing an opportunity for any able-bodied, public-minded citizen to serve the community in times of need. For its part, the government has no intention of using the services of the Legion of Frontiersmen and can envisage no circumstances in which it would be appropriate to do so. The letter ends by saying we fully appreciate your concern about the creation of such organisations, but in a democratic society such as ours, people are free to form themselves into organisations no matter how objectionable their aim may be to other people provided they do not exceed the limits set by law. So that's always how this story goes. Whether you're setting up the Legion of Frontiersmen and carrying out Operation Condor, or whether you're the little street watchers in a ruined Surrey village, you must always remember that you're working within the limits set by law. It's the people in charge who are telling you what you can and cannot do. You can strut around in Surrey saying, I'm a street watcher. Yes, but you don't have any power. And if you get above your station and try to exercise power, I have a feeling that you will soon be slapped down. So yes, the idea was get your locals to step up and assist the police by becoming street watchers or going on little patrols or maybe guarding some supplies. But as soon as the police or the army appear on the scene... You'd better stand down. Don't get any ideas, you street watchers. So the above scenario shows a village working under a single surviving police officer who can organise them and issue instructions. But what if there is no such officer? Well then, it's up to our community leader, the vigorous local man of leadership, to step up. In the absence of police, according to the guidelines here, he might set up a peacekeeping force. But again, in the interests of keeping these people under control, not letting them get carried away with their new power or the new illusion of power, the community leader must keep firm control of them, offer strict instructions and keep records of their actions. So who is this vigorous local man of leadership? Well, he'll have been chosen prior to nuclear war in the planning stage. And the guidelines here say that the community leader should be, quote, a person of good standing with respect in the community, preferably a person with experience of command. As for the so-called peacekeeping force he'll assemble, they should be, quote, people with common sense. Those who can remain level-headed in a crisis 
people who are respected in the community, people who are active. But even if you're appointed community leader or a street watcher or part of the patrol, running through this whole document here is a constant reminder that these people, these ordinary people who've been given this duty, must never get above their station, get no illusions that you're in charge. You're only doing this until the real lads can get back in charge and quote, it would of course be wrong for any private vigilante groups to set themselves up as self-appointed peacekeepers and these must be ruthlessly stamped out. And yet, how could our little peacekeeping street watchers ever get delusions of grandeur? After all, they won't be togged up in sleek uniforms or zooming around in squad cars. Instead, they'll be a <laughs> ragtag bunch, perhaps wearing an armband of some sort as an ID. And in a final check to their pride, the teams will be called to the rendezvous point by the banging together of dustbin lids. Remember, the communications are down, so in order to summon your patrol in an emergency, quote, use runners, whistles, banging dustbin lids together, etc. The final humiliating reminder that you're not the Sweeney. Get your trousers on. You're nicked. A thank you then to all my patrons who, through their monthly donations, have enabled me to buy various archives, travel to various archives, or when I can't reach them, pay for downloads or printouts to be sent to me. If you want to support the podcast and my nuclear research, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my latest patrons, David Davies and Rebecca and Laura Curtis-Moss. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, Facebook under Nuclear Britain, or my website, juliemcdowell.com. Thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.